Several years ago, I was at an academic conference in downtown Atlanta. It was for theologians, philosophers, biblical scholars, religion scholars. And after the main plenary address, we were all outside in the hotel lobby having a coffee hour, having coffee, tea, little cakes. People are meeting new friends, talking to old friends, networking. And a gal comes over to me and she goes, well, hello, Jared. And I said, uh, do I know you? I didn't recognize them. And she goes, no, you're wearing a name tag. <laughs> right, right, right. So she goes, Jared, what's your story? What's your story? Has anybody ever asked you what your story is? To me, that's a rather daunting question. Where do you want to start? Do you want to know my stats? My birth date, where and when I graduated from? Do you want to know about my relationship status? What story are you getting at? But we are creatures of story, aren't we? The great American theologian Stanley Hauerwas actually says that we are story-formed creatures, meaning that the sorts of stories we rehearse most often in our minds and the ones that come out of our mouths or the ones that we take in from outside of us are the kinds of stories that shape the sense of self that we have and where we're situated within the world. They shape the way we think of other people. They shape the way we think about what the greatest significant problem our world faces. Stories form us. And if we are story formed, as he suggests, and I agree, Shouldn't we know our story pretty well, and shouldn't we be able to tell it even better? The biblical scholar N.T. Wright wrote about 20 years ago that you can tell someone a fact and change their mind. That was true of 20 years ago. I don't know if it's true in today's climate, but let's go with them. You can tell someone a fact and change their mind, but... If you can tell a, someone a story, you may just change their life. Why? Because our lives are experienced in narrative form. We have a beginning. We have a middle. We have an end. We have a sense of journey to our story. We have a sense of conflict that comes in here or there. And we have senses of overcoming or failing. We are narrative beings. Because of that, we have many stories that we tell and live. Now, there are a good many stories that I find quite excellent, good stories that we should be telling. But to me, it seems that our world struggles with many poor stories, too. There is one story that's told in a lot of places, and it uses a lot of different language, but it can go like this. I'm not worthy. Underneath whatever tale you're telling is the concept of not being worthy, meaning I'm not smart enough, I'm not attractive enough, I'm not wealthy enough, I'm not good enough to get whatever blessing or flourishing I should get out of life. I'm unworthy. And sometimes we conflate that word worthy with deserving. I'm undeserving. There was once a young man who kept getting involved in relationships with people he shouldn't get involved with. Now, this young man had people in mind that he would love to be in relationships with, these people of upright character, moral standing people who would actually 
Treat him well, as they say in many Christian circles, guard his heart. But he didn't think himself worthy. And so he found himself in the company of other people who didn't treat his heart well, who lied, who abused, who hurt, or participated in things that were not necessarily helpful to him and drug him down a peg or two on the ladder. There's a whole string of bad relationships behind this young man, and so he wanted to change his life, and he found a mentor, someone he could talk to, and he sat down in their office asking questions. Why, why, why do I keep finding myself in all these bad relationships? The mentor, having a keen eye for this young man's heart, said, it seems to me that you need to pick some people in your life that you think are valuable and worth your time, who will care for you in the right ways, and try to be in relationship with them, and stay away from the folks who don't care so much for you. The young man said, I can't. I'm not worthy. I think we need a better story. And there are other stories to choose from in our world. You can see them everywhere. Here's a story that you can find that's shaped our country. It shaped the entire modern West. It shapes the way we think about business. It shapes the way we think about war. It shapes the way we think about everything, whether we know it or not. The fancy Latin for the story goes like this, bellum omnium contras omnis. Thomas Hobbes wrote of this in his great book, Leviathan. And in Latin, we translate that to English, the war of all against all. The great political philosopher Thomas Hobbes suggests that the human animal was brutish, nasty, and short. It's very famous to quote him on this because he really did see the human animal as an animal that by nature was warring, that would war against all for the sake of one's own self. So we needed something to protect each other. A Leviathan, his metaphor for some form of government to sit atop of the individual world of warlike, nasty, brute, short living creatures to give us a social contract to keep us all in check so I won't take from you and you won't take from me because that's all we are. It's greedy and nasty to each other. Now, I know that you might not think that way about people. You've seen one too many Frank Capra movies. You know, he wrote It's a Wonderful Life. It's more optimistic. But it's there everywhere operating in our background operating system. For example... John Adams, one of our founding fathers, was such a great devotee to this idea and Hobbes' philosophy that he advocated for a three-tier system of government or a three-part system of government. Because if we had just one, an executive branch or a legislative branch, they would take too much power from the people. So we needed three because they would constantly be in battle. So even if you believe in this or not, you and I still live under this story. But I think there's more. I think this story finds its way up into our hearts, even the hearts of good Christian people. I'll never forget the day we were having a little family gathering, family reunion, sitting out somewhere in some poolside area. My dad and I were standing around some family members, probably holding a plastic plate with baked beans on it, some barbecue with our plastic forks, talking about life. Folks on the other side of the circle were talking about 
some conspiratorial things, some esoteric things, to me anyway, it sounded as though they knew something I didn't know about what was going to be coming in the government any day now, and it sounded almost like a zombie apocalypse. I took the bait. I asked the question what they were talking about. By the way, this is a long time ago. And they told us that the government was about to go sideways and it was going to be important for us to think about how we're going to take care of ourselves. And so I said, by taking the bait once more, how are you doing that? And so this person, devout Christian churchgoer, told me that they were stockpiling gold in their basement, foodstuffs for X amount of years, this many guns, and this amount of ammunition. I was floored. I said, what are you going to do with all that when the world goes sideways? Well, I found out that they owned a bug-out house for all their loved ones to go to for when the world would turn in on itself. I asked, do I have a place in your bug-out house? I didn't. Hmm. So who's going to be there? And I found the list of the folks that were going to be there. I'm like, oh, okay. And so what are you going to do if anybody comes around looking for help? Like, because other people may need some of that food. What would you do then? And the answer floored me. This person in my family said, anyone who steps foot on the property will blow them all away. Now, what types of stories must have they been swimming in and living in to produce that sort of social imaginary? My father and I began to debate with them that it probably wasn't Christian to think in such terms and probably isn't a good idea to hoard if people have need and probably thinking of blowing anyone away wasn't on the mind of Christ. But we didn't win any arguments. We should have just talked about how good the beans tasted. We would have done better. Oh, we've got stories that we tell and I think some of them are good, but I think we also need better stories. You know what, I think we actually have some good stories at hand, pretty close to our hearts and our minds if we think about it. One of them is found as the hallmark of the Old and New Testaments, and it's found in the New Testament. You see, wherever you go in the Old Testament, you're reading words colored by people who had an event in mind that shaped their identity of the world. And it's a story that they would tell to the generations upon generations upon generations. Even when they were away from their homeland and in exile, they would tell the story. We call that story the Exodus. You remember when in the Old Testament, people of God, when they were exiled into slavery, they were held by Egypt as slaves and they had to work in the hot, hot sun and they did work that broke their backs. They live in a very constricted life there, not in their homeland and not in great shalom or peace. They lived under the sweat and blood and toil of Pharaoh's commands. You remember that in Hebrew, the word for Egypt is Mitzrayim, which literally means narrow space. And in a literal way, it's true. If you look at the map of the area, the great fertile River Nile and its delta is very narrow in the vast regions of that desert. But think of it metaphorically and theologically for a moment. The people of God see themselves as constricted into a very narrow space. And it is God. 
God who rises up the unlikely leader named Moses, and he tells Moses to go into Egypt and to look Pharaoh in the eye and say, let my people go. The story is more complicated, but let the people go happened. And the people of God went from that narrow space, that constrictive space, to the wide open lands flowing with milk and honey, to the lands that God would give the people where they could once more have shalom and flourish. It's a good story. And it's meaningful for Easter Sunday because it is the very story that Jesus, from time and again, seems to be extending and fulfilling in His own ministry. Before we get there, let me show you how powerful this story really was. You can still find a copy of the Slave Bible in our region. It's in Nashville, Tennessee. Have you ever heard of the Slave Bible? It's published in 1807. You can find it at Fisk University in the library. You see, the slaveholders of the time wanted their slaves to know Christ and become Christian. So they gave them copies of the Bible, but they redacted the Bible to take out every discussion of the Exodus. I don't know how, you can't understand Jesus without this story. You can't understand Jesus without Moses, but they took all those pieces out because they didn't want the slaves that they owned, that they stole, to get it in their minds that they could go from the constrictive space of slavery to a more free space. So they wanted them to know about Christianity, but they didn't want them to get any funny ideas. So they changed the Bible. That's how powerful the story is. That is nothing short of the term we use in religious studies as instrumental religion. If you've ever seen the movie The Book of Eli with Denzel Washington, you see it there in a more cinem cinematic way. In the post-apocalyptic landscape of the movie, there is a villain, and he can read, and all of his warlord underlings and his road warriors, they can't read. And he keeps saying to them, go out and find books for me. They keep bringing books back, and they never find the right book. He yells at them, and they say, how can we know what book you want? We can't read. And he says, I want you to find a book that has this on top of it. Made the image of the cross. Because this man knew that if he had the Bible, then he could wield its hope over people. And he can use that hope to control them. This is using religion as an instrument for one people's power over another, and it happens all the time. Real religion is the story of Exodus, where God looks at a people who are slaves and says, I have freedom for you. I want to let you go. I want you to live in the land of the living, in the land of flourishing, flowing with milk and honey. This is all proof that stories have power, and we need a better one. As I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus' life and ministry picks up on the Exodus narrative. He sees his own ministry as shaped by the Exodus narrative. In fact, think about it like this. Whoever God is, God is at work in Jesus setting people free. Whether it's found in this window of mercy where Jesus is healing the sick, 
or healing the blind people so that they can see, or helping the lame to walk again, or going to the disenfranchised, people who had diseases that were making them unclean or just ailments where they couldn't be around the community, or maybe they, maybe they were women without husbands or sons to care for them, but they lived in the margins, and Jesus went and brought those people in, giving them the freedom of love and community and wholeness. In Jesus... God is giving freedom to those who have been restrained and constricted by the world around them. In Jesus, there is freedom. And perhaps this story that we think of this morning, we see the greatest example of it. We have women who come to the grave. And as we all know, if you wanted to prove a point in this time, in this day, in this age, in this place, you wouldn't have women being the first to testify about it. That would be dubious. But it's women. It's women who get the freedom of seeing an empty tomb. And when they walk into it, they see nobody there. And the fact that there is no body is good news for everybody. Because the resurrection isn't for some. The resurrection is for all people. Because whoever God is, God is the one who wants to free us of what holds us broken and holds us restrained and holds us down. And the greatest of these things is death. The resurrection tells us that yes, you will die, but there is a life and freedom that you can live that will outlive your death. The resurrection reminds us that yes, you will die, but there's hope in our own resurrection that we will follow the empty tomb and find the greatest freedom with God waiting for us. You know, there's a lot of people speaking in the church over these past 20 years that I've been listening to who would say in response to this gift to all of us that I'm not worthy. Whoever told you you weren't worthy of the cross? Whoever told you you weren't worthy to forgive? Who told you that you weren't worthy for freedom? We need a better story than that. If you want to say, I'm not deserving of it, I'll give you that. Because ain't none of us done enough to do anything to get the freedom that we're given. If you want to say you're not deserving, you can say that, but don't you dare tell me you're not worthy. Because you want to know why? Because I don't know why, except for the fact that God says you're worth it to me. I don't know why, but God says you're worth it to me. I don't know why, but God looks at me and says I'm worth it to him to be free of everything that holds me back and makes me less of who I'm supposed to be, from everything that hinders my soul and my body and my life. I don't know why, but God said you were worth it to me. Now that's a good story. And we need a better story. 